Welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all the popes from St. Peter to Francis. And this is episode 6, Pope Clement I. Do you know anything about Clement? I do not. My first thought went to oranges, and I don't think that's right. Well, we will be talking about something Clementine later. But I will tell you that Clement is the first pope that we actually know definite things about. Ooh, like historical facts. Actual facts. Ooh. At least, I mean, there's some definite actual facts. There's there's not a lot of definite actual facts, but it's significantly more than we've had so far, so woohoo! Yeah, considering the last several popes have just been speculation and confusion. And I mean, because of exactly that, we we have to again talk about numbering order confusion with Clement, because... He's very prominent in the early church, and because of that prominence, some sources call him the second or the third pope after Peter, and sometimes when Anacletus is listed as two people, he's kind of placed between the two, which messes everything up. We have to acknowledge that at least, but since most sources agree today that Clement is number four, and so saith the Annuario Pontifico, so saith we, and that is what we're going with. They're trying their best. Pope Clement also gets a particularly special designation. He is called the First Apostolic Father of the Church, which is a designation given to influential church members of the 1st and 2nd century who had had personal contact with or had been followers of the apostles, but they had not been followers of Jesus during his lifetime. So there's this kind of like the next step. You had, you had the apostles who knew Jesus. Now you have the apostolic fathers who knew the apostles. All right. So it's like the six degrees from Kevin Bacon thing, but Kevin Bacon is Jesus. Exactly. These are people who generally are fairly active in spreading the gospels. And they're writing on behalf of the church in, like, matters of theology and heresy, and they're writing collections of Christian writings and being extremely insightful for historians on the first centuries of the church, and they're highly respected, but they are not considered to be part of the official canon. So these are people who are writing at the same time as the Bible's being written, but they're not in the Bible. They're not part of the canon. Um, they don't get that special designation. They're the special witnesses to the early faith, being close to the apostles, witnessing the martyrdoms, or coming to martyrdoms themselves, but they're not in the official canon. Talking about how Clement fits this role, our great source Irenaeus gives us a nice, succinct description of why he belongs as an apostolic father if they even considered them in that way at that time. He says that Clement, quote, saw the blessed apostles and conversed with them and had yet ringing in his ears the preaching of the apostles and had their tradition before his eyes, and he not only for many were then surviving who had been taught by the apostles. They write so long-winded. Grammar and punctuation is not exactly a thing in the way that Latin is written, so yeah, this is a thing. Other apostolic fathers from this time period, just for future reference because we will be talking about some of these people, include St. Ignatius of Antioch, who will be our source for many of the early popes. He gives us a lot of information. Polycarp of Smyrna. Polycarp. Polycarp of Smyrna. That is a name, and, and he's a very influential figure, so he is many fishes. He is. He's of Smyrna. Of Smyrna. Yeah, it feels like somebody sneezed some letters there. I'm, I'm sad that it's not Smyrna, like the vodka. Many fishes of booze? Yes. There's also uh, the Didac, which is a treatise that is authored anonymously which gives us the oldest catechism that's not included in the official canon. Even though we don't know who he was, that person who wrote that thing, they are an apostolic father. And then there's one other, Hermas, the shepherd of Hermas, who we will be returning to 
in some detail later on because he's historically accepted to be the brother of one of our future popes that we're going to cover in about six episodes. So nice. Hurrah. On to Clement's life. Uh, Clement was born in around 35 AD, and he may have originally been a freedman in the imperial household. Keep forgetting they're slaves, that there's slaves all over this place. There are so many Pope slaves. And what's important about knowing that Clement might have been a slave is that he maybe was a slave of someone called Titus Flavius Clemens, who is a former Roman consul and a cousin of Emperor Domitian. And this is very important, so we'll be coming back to this later. Write that name down, Titus Flavius Clemens. I'm not going to spell it right. Well, just write it down. You don't speak Latin. <laughs> I don't speak Latin. What we need to know at this point, let's just assume that he was the slave owner of the person who would be Pope Clement. He was converted and baptized by Peter and became one of the most prominent and influential members of the Roman Church very easily, along with Linus and Anacletus. But unlike our previous two popes, it seems that Clement wasn't sent out into the world to preach the gospel. The way that, you know, when Linus went out and got driven out of the city, and then Cletus went and started his own congregation in the south of Italy, Clement is staying in Rome to preach to the city and manage the church and communicate with all the other churches because Peter, at the time, was busy devoting himself to prayer. He's kind of like Pope Peter's secretary, in a way. He's doing all the work, he's the one that's getting out there, he's doing the PR, he's doing the admin, and he's making a mark for himself in the early church because he even gets referenced by Paul in Philippians as being a quote-unquote fellow laborer in Christ with the apostles. So, you know, he's doing his thing. He's making a mark. Mm -hmm. Pretty cool. We can assume that you know, after Peter and Paul are martyred, Clement stays in Rome and helps manage the church through the papacies of Linus and Anacletus. And like we've discussed in the previous episodes, they were probably all considered about the same level of authority at that time. But we can assume that after the death of Anacletus in 92, Clement becomes the prime bishop of the city, and therefore the pope. It's probably safe to assume that he carried on the duties that he'd been entrusted with at that time. Just keeping on. He's keeping on, keeping on, and now that both Linus and Anacletus have died, he is head honcho all by himself. Now, as Pope, Clement is famous for one major thing, and this is the epistle that he wrote to the church in Corinth, also known as the Letter to the Corinthians. Oh, it's that. It's that, yes. This document can verifiably be attributed to Clement, making it the first thing that we can say for sure that a pope wrote. And because of this, this is also the first for sure comments about the state of the church at the end of the first century that we can have without a shadow of a doubt. He wrote this letter, so this gives us an idea of what the role of Pope looked like to him at the time that he actually was holding it. That is cool. That is pretty neat. Can you explain to me why everybody writes letters to the Corinthians? Based on my research, if anything can be taken away from it, it's that the Corinthians were just the, like, troubled cousin of the church, they're always getting into some sort of discord. They're fairly fractured. Let's get into it. Why is Clement writing to the church? Well, he's responding to a conflict that's broken the peace of the Corinthian church. And the congregation is basically fractionalizing into these different factions where they were having all sorts of problems because the church of Corinth had gone ahead and deposed certain presbyters or leaders of the local church that had been appointed, and they felt that they had the right to do this, and this is causing all sorts of problems. 
Clement is writing to the church to not only object to the deposition, he's asserting very clearly that the authority of the presbyters is inviolable because it had come directly from the apostles. Peter had had ordained and consecrated these presbyters. They are under no circumstances to be deposed by anyone except for the Pope. He calls on the church to reinstate them and for the people who had deposed them to repent for their disobedience to church order and their disobedience to the authority instilled by the apostles of Christ. Apostolic succession. It's, it's all coming full circle now. Would this letter be passive aggressive or actual aggressive? It's actually kind of in tone. It's it's very um it's not really condemning, it's not really chastising. It's like I am the leader of this church, I am the unquestionable seat of rule, and everyone is aware of this, so you need to do what I say. It's basically like a brother writing to their younger unruly brother, like, hey, Maybe you need to shape up a little bit. It's actually quite, like, familial and not harsh, surprisingly. It's a good step for a future church leader or at-the-time church leader. Exactly! He's, you know, he's the Pope at this point, so it is a very, like, he is definitely establishing himself as the leader. And so this letter is huge for the church and for historians. Because this is the earliest verifiable document that we can authenticate as Christian writing extant, which means outside of the Bible. For the church, this is the first time that we actually see an intervention of Rome dealing with other churches anywhere else. They have started to consecrate and they've started to found different dioceses, different churches around. But this is the first time we actually see intervention. And this is the first time we see Rome as having the justifiable power to intervene, establishing itself as the preeminent authority of the church as a whole, which is huge, right? We, we've been saying that Rome is the heart of this religion and of this church, but now it's really, we're starting to see that people actually knew that at the time, and that the whole apostolic authority is going to be the supreme authority. And all other positions of authority and rule are going to come through that apostolic authority. So you have to be appointed by the Pope. Yes. I mean, at least it puts all of that into a historical perspective. Yeah. It's the first moment that we can prove that even in this time period, 100 years, 70 years roughly after the death of Christ, that Rome is the center of the Christian world. This all makes the letter to the Corinthians one of the most important documents of the early church, hands down. Roman primacy, apostolic authority, even talks about the different roles of the early church that we couldn't wrap our heads around before because there was nobody writing about it. He talks about the episcopoi, which are your bishops. He talks about the presbyters, the elders. He talks about deacons. And he gives us a taste of what early church ministry would have looked like. So. This is why it's so important. So important that in like the third and fourth centuries, it was actually considered scripture. And it is still read out in some churches with scripture. So even though it's not scripture, it's really, really important. It's a good base layer, foundation, as it were. And so this is the really the one that we can attribute to him for sure. There are a couple other writings that are attributed to Clement, but we're back to that old historical debate on whether he wrote it or not. So going through them briefly, there is a second epistle of Clement, which, unlike the letter to the Corinthians, it's a homily, and it's discussing repentance, and now is strongly considered to be written by someone else. Well, if he didn't put his name on it. Well, exactly. And the style is very different. So people initially thought maybe this was his, but now that we can look at it and see compared to his actual writing that we can verify, maybe not. There are also two epistles on virginity that are thought to originally be his. Ooh, that's a touchy subject. Yeah, and people now think almost for certain that he had nothing to do with that. He was also thought to have been an author of what is called the pseudo-Isidorian decretals, which are documents that are supposedly authored by popes 
who were claiming to have absolute and universal authority. But these are proven to be forgeries created somewhere around the ninth century, probably to bolster up popes who at the time wanted it to be very clear that they had absolute and universal authority. Can you uh, bring this back up in the ninth century when we get to that pope or that, that pile of popes? We most likely will, because that's when we start having some really interesting discussions about papal authority. So, yes. We will get back to the pseudo-Isidorian decretals in so many episodes from now. Several years, possibly. Well, we're, you know, we're, we're almost, I'm almost done researching the second century, so who knows? We're going to get there one day. Stick with us. There is one more story to Clement's life and papacy to discuss that we have to talk about more than just his writing, because... We have a whole banishment and imprisonment to look at because these are great stories. Ooh. We actually have things to talk about today. I'm very excited. According to the Christian tradition, Clement was an excellent preacher, and he converted many people to Christianity throughout his papacy and before, as he's working in Rome. And one of his converts is an imperial courtier called Sicinius along with his wife, Theodora. And by converting such a prominent member of society at the time leads to a snowballing of 400 new converts within the imperial community. It was the new in thing. It was definitely the new in thing, and people were jumping on the bandwagon. And this really does not sit well with Emperor Trajan, who had Clement banished from Rome to the Chersonius region, which is a Greek-held city in what would be southwest Crimea today. So far. Yeah, that's a jaunt. In this banishment, Clement was not just, like, sent away. He was condemned to work in a stone quarry. Ooh. Yeah, it's, it would not be pleasant times. I mean, I'm sure you've seen some sort of Roman film or TV show or something where they have the slaves in the stone quarry. It's awful. And when he got there, Clement found that all the prisoners slash enslaved workers at the quarry were all being deprived of water and suffering from mass dehydration. Yeah, that's no good. Yeah, it's not terribly surprising when you have these hot stone quarries that maybe people are dehydrated when they're slaves and prisoners because no one really cares. But Clement cares. And so <laughs> you want death, that's how you catch death. Yeah, he's he's thinking maybe not so good. So he gets down on his knees to pray. And when he looks up from praying, in the distance, he sees a lamb standing on top of a hill. That's not water. It's, it's not water. It's a lamb on top of a hill. You cannot drink that. Please don't try to drink that. He sees this lamb. And he gets up, and he goes to where the lamb was standing, and it's not there anymore, but he goes there to, to check out where this lamb is standing. And he takes his quarry pickaxe, and he strikes the ground at the spot that the lamb was standing. And as soon as he does this, a gushing stream of clear, drinkable water pours forth with more than enough to slake the thirst of all the prisoners, and it's fantastic. It's a miracle. All right, okay. And he tells everybody to not become addicted to water. And so, of course, this miracle leads to conversions en masse of prisoners, as well as other locals around the stone quarry who end up hearing about what has happened. And before long, over 2,000 people have converted in response to this miracle, who then go on to build about 75 churches in the surrounding area. It's a lot. It's, it's a lot of churches. It's a lot of people. He's done a thing. He's really growing the church here. But this is not what Trajan had in mind when he banished the Pope from Rome to work himself to death. Well, this has backfired on Trajan in a big way. You messed up. He, he messed up big. And so Clement gets sentenced to death by Alphidianus, who is the prefect who is overseeing the quarry. And he's not just sentenced to death, because, of course, he has to be made an example of. It's not just good enough to, like, whack his head off or anything. 
Clement is taken out onto a ship into the Black Sea. He is tied to an anchor and thrown overboard. There's some mob stuff there happening. Stone quarry prefects are the first godfather. You heard it here. This is the end of Clement's papacy. Obviously. He is dead. When you drown. But this is not the end of his story. No. After his death, two disciples come to the Black Sea and they pray that they're going to find the remains of the martyred Clement. And miraculously, the sea ebbs out in front of them, revealing a shrine that has been divinely constructed by angels, with all of Clement's bones neatly inside. Alright, first off, if any sort of sea is going to ebb out that far, it's time to leave, because that means it's a tsunami. It sure does! <laughs> the fact that they were just like, ah, oh, this must be a sign and we should go in here. Oh, no danger sense in these Catholics at all. So... Yeah, they they find this, well, maybe if the sea was ebbing and then you find a shrine built by angels, because I imagine a shrine built by angels would be pretty perfect. You might be like, oh, maybe, maybe tsunami, but maybe angels. One of these disciples, Phoebus, collects the bones, which would eventually be interred in the Basilica of St. Clement. But for years, it was recorded that the sea would annually recede like this to display this divine stone chapel from the seabed. So maybe lots of tsunamis. Or the angels were just like, look, I made this. <laughs> look at my shrine. It's beautiful. Why did I build it underwater? Nobody ever sees it. But of course, we have to cast some doubt on this story because another story has St. Cyril finding the bones of St. Clement on dry land, with an anchor, in 867, and they were then brought to the Basilica of St. Clement. But they also claimed to have his head as a relic in the Kiev Monastery of the Caves, so he's somewhere, and that's specifically in the Monastery of the Caves, so he's somewhere. He's got body parts in many places. Yes. So we have to take these stories for what they are. This is the conventionally accepted story about his martyrdom, but we should note just for the record, that neither Jerome nor Eusebius mention this story at all in their accounts of their popes, but all of the other ones do. But this is not the whole story with Clement's Bones, because we've had a development literally in the last month. Oh, okay. Well, yes. breaking news, everybody. Breaking Clement news. So breaking that by the time I had done my research on Clement for this episode, it had not happened yet. So, uh, thanks to Scott Rowland for bringing this to my attention, and full disclosure, this is a little bit we're adding after the fact. In May of 2018, workers at a London waste disposal company called EnviroWaste, they found something really interesting when they were sorting through refuse that had been collected from the city over the year. Did someone throw out his bones? Yep. What? Yeah. So the item that was found in question, like the, the item that was found is literally a bone fragment in a glass casing sealed with red and gold wax. And next to the bone in inside this glass casing is a fragment of paper that says Ex Os S Clementis PM. So that's E X O S S dot S Clementis with an I S P M, which translates to the bone of Saint Clement. And of course, PM is for Pontifex Maximus. Who got fired over this? Do you want to see it? Yeah. Show me this accidental trash. <laughs> I'll show you. I have shown you the accidental trash. That doesn't even look like trash. No. It's really nice looking. Looks really old it's like and a really nice. Jeweled brooch. I don't know how big it is. There's not a banana for scale, so. I don't imagine it's very big. Um, like maybe it sits in the palm of your hand is kind of what I'm gathering based on the size of the wax seal. Yeah. So, yeah, this was found and the Catholic Herald is going so far as to confirm this to be the bone of our Pope Clement. And this makes a lot of sense because Considering his miraculous stories, he's definitely the type of saint that relics would be wanted for. 
especially in the relics craze of the medieval age. Mm -hmm. But also because of this relics craze and all of the fake relics that were made, it is also like super not likely that this is actually Clement's bone. This is a pope from 2000 years ago. This is not likely his bone. But all the same, since canon law currently states that it is forbidden to sell relics, the company, EnviroWaste, is now asking for suggestions on where they should send the relic to give it a better home than at the office of a trash company. So, can't sell it, might as well throw it away. <laughs> yeah, that could be how it ended there. We don't know. So, either his bones are in the cave, or they're in the Basilica di San Clemente, like we've talked about, or um, a piece of him has been in the London garbage and is now sitting at a garbage company. Pope Clement staying relevant in the 21st century. Yeah, all of a sudden. This is our first pontifact. It's definitely a pontifact. And this is the kind of ridiculous crap that we make this show for. Isn't that great? Someone threw his bones away. Someone's like, I don't need this. The bones of a saint. Something you'd find in storage wars by accident. It's just very wise. Digging through, going, what's this? I guess I'll go ask this sexy lady I know. Now, he's dead. It's over. But before we go on to rank Clement, there is another thing that we need to talk about. Are you prepared? I don't think so, no. We need to talk about how someone has written a romance about St. Clement. Oh. Oh. Oh, yes. We refer to this today as the Clementine literature. And and before we get into it, let's let's qualify here that when we say a romance, that means like a hero story. It's not like slash fic. Yeah, like an old school saga type romance. Mhm. We don't know exactly who wrote it, but since it's both cited by Origen and Eusebius, we know that it was already in existence by 325 AD and had probably been written somewhere around 150 to 200. Other clues that we get from the content and the writing style indicate that the person was probably an Arian. And by Arian, I mean the religious Arians. We'll get to them in very, very good detail. Not a white person. Not just a white person, but like the people... There's going to be a whole section of this podcast where we talk about the Aryan versus anti-Aryan controversy, so I'm not going to get into it now, but this guy was probably an Aryan, and he probably lived on the Phoenician coast somewhere. So there are two versions of this Clementine literature, and the two versions are referred to as the Clementine homilies and the Clementine recognition. Nice. What great names. Of the latter of the two, the original Greek has been lost, but a Latin translation from Tyrannius Rufinus is still around. Between the two texts, they are roughly the same length. In large part, they are the same. But there are sections that will only appear in one or the other and not in both. More than likely, both versions were copied from an original longer version that's been lost, and that each version we do have retains different parts from that first original version. Oh, it's like that whole thing with the uh, Icelandic sagas where it was like sometimes they would revise it and just add in their own stuff or leave things out. Yes, monks are weird that way. I mean, I would also revise things if that is all I did all day. You just throw in your own artistic flair? Every time. And then there was a dragon! Never forget. The story of the Clementine literature is a straight-up romance literary trope piece of fiction which follows the exciting adventure of the life of Clement from his perspective as he becomes the traveling companion of St. Peter, is revealed of his own noble heritage, because he, in this, this whole story, is Titus Flavius Clemens, and remember when I said we were going to come back to that? Oh, Here yeah. we are. There's there's clearly some confusion about the person who wrote this because they think that Clement in this version is the actual person who owned the slave Clement rather than actually being a slave of this person. But it's also done in the first person. 
And it sounds 100% like a young adult novel. Oh, just you wait, because I am going to summarize this thing for you. Oh. And it is going to be so young adult novelish. You are you are not even prepared. <laughs> I'm not prepared. Trope time. Along the way, we should mention this story also reflects on like the different aspects of religion. The character of Clement like waxes about his doubts and his fears and his religious questionings and his supposed love of celibacy and so on. Dicks out for celibacy. Clement is totally, totally all about his love for celibacy. But none of that is is the interesting bit. So I am going to tell you the story of the Clementine literature. Are you prepared? No, no, I am not. I am having a time. Are you feeling a little bit flustered? Because yes. So our story begins with Clement in Rome, hearing a man from Judea called Barnabas preaching about the miracles of Jesus. A mob is brewing against Barnabas, and Clement intercedes to defend him, and the two decide that they're going to begin to travel together because now they're buddies. <laughs> they're friends. You save my life, you my friend. First, they intend to go to Palestine, but they are driven off course by rough storms, and so they end up in Alexandria. And here, a similar thing happens. Barnabas preaches, a mob forms, and Clement has to protect him. Barnabas needs to say some nicer stuff. Yeah, Barnabas is not making any friends anywhere they go. So they leave Alexandria and they go to Caesarea. And in Caesarea, Clement is introduced to St. Peter, who is there to dispute a man called Simon Magnus. Peter invites Clement instantly to join him as he preaches in various cities on his way to Rome. Mary Sue. Actually, Gary Stew? There's so much of that. He is the gariest of stews, okay? So he's instantly now joined Peter, and he's going to be his traveling companion as they go. So they're going, and Peter also calls for his two other disciples, called Nicetas and Aquila, called the Foster Sons of Justa, who is a woman whose daughter had been healed by Christ. We have Nicetas, we have Aquila. And these disciples had been taught by Simon Magnus as children but had been converted to Christianity by another disciple of Peter's recently. So they're there with Peter to explain more about Simon Magnus, and they elaborate that he is originally a follower of John the Baptist, but now he claims to be greater than God. Ooh. He claims to be able to do all sorts of magical marvels. He says that he can become invisible. He can make trees grow. He can animate statues to life. He can pass through walls and rocks, and he can make himself impervious to injury. So this is the person that Peter is there to have a dispute with. And the disputation between Peter and Simon happens the next day in the morning. And surprise, surprise, Simon is handily defeated and flees away to the city of Tyre. He flees away like Count Olaf. You're going to notice a lot of tropes here. I'm, I'm not even joking. So, yes. It's fair. They didn't exist before this point. They're not technically tropes yet. They're all new material. Well, this is where the legacy starts, okay? Maybe this is where we give him points for Secularis Impactum, because he's making an impact on literature as a whole. So Simon Magnus is gone. So Peter sets up one of his disciples to be the Bishop of Caesarea. He casually baptizes about 10,000 people. And then he carries on to go after Simon Magnus. Casual 10,000 people baptism. It's like mentioned so offhandedly. He then baptized 10,000 people and went off after Magnus. If you were trying to follow somebody, you think you might do it a little bit quicker than that. That probably took like a week or like at least, at least some time. Even if he was going nonstop, like is it was just 10,000 people, dip your head all at once, go. He stood on a rock while everybody flopped in the water. I'm done. We let's go. So they're going to find Simon Magnus. And of course, Clement goes with him. So they travel to Ortosius and Antaridus, and along the way, Clement starts to reveal his life story to Peter and his followers. According to this tale, Clement's true name, again, is Titus Flavius Clemens, cousin of the emperor. But after he was born... His mother had a vision that unless she left Rome with her two older sons, her whole family was going to die. 
His mother then left and sent the oldest two sons on to Athens with some servants, only for them all to disappear with no trace. And then when Clement is twelve, his father leaves to search for them, and he disappears as well. So his whole family is gone. He's a noble. He has no family. Do we see the tropes happening? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Peter and Clement travel on, and they reach an island called Aridus. And on this island, Peter encounters a beggar woman. And while he's talking to her, he discovers that, surprise, it's Clement's mother, Matilia. All right. So Peter heals all of her ailments and reunites her with her son. And she tells her story about her twin sons who had gone missing, called Faustus and Faustinus. And that her husband was Faustus, a relative of Augustus, the emperor. In her version of the story, she says that she had left to avoid scandal because her brother-in-law had been making progressively aggressive sexual advances on her. And when she left, she and her boys had been shipwrecked along the way. And while she had made it to the island, the boys were nowhere to be found. So lovely. He's been reunited with his mother. It's a lovely story. Fantastic. Clement's mother becomes a companion of Peter's wife, who literally gets more mention in this story than we have any evidence of in real life. Did they name her? She does not have oh, a name. God. But she is there. You had one job, anonymous author. Should we give her a name? Yeah, yeah. What's a, what's a good Hebrew name? Let me go. Hebrew name generator. The first one that comes up. Oh, there we go. Give me a lady name. Her name is Chagit. <laughs> C-H-A-G-I-T, Chagit. So now Clement's mother, Matidia, who does get a name, is now traveling companions of Chagit, Peter's wife. And the group all move on together to Lidosia in Syria. And while there, Nicetus and Aquila, Peter's disciples from before, meet them there, and when they hear the amazing story of Clement's reunion with his mother, they are agape with wonder, and they declare themselves to be Faustus and Faustinus, Clement's brothers and Matidia's sons. Surprise! We were here the whole time. Oh my god! So, according to them, they had been saved on a piece of the shipwreck and floated until they were rescued by another boat only to be mistreated and sold into slavery until they were able to be rescued in effect by their foster mother, Justa. Wonderful moment. The family is emotionally reunited and Matidia is baptized. And then Peter kind of gives this whole like sermon on chastity and it seems really weirdly placed and moving on. So the next morning, Peter is praying and an old man interrupts him and chastises him for his prayers. He tells Peter that, Prayer is a mistake, and that all things are governed by nemesis or by fate. And he knows so, because of all the misfortune in his life that has caused him to lose his wife and all of his sons. And then, Faustus and Faustinus recognize the man, and it is their father! Oh god. <laughs> so they bring their mother, who recognize her husband, and the whole family is reunited. It's a Shakespearean-esque miracle! Nobody's been dead. Nobody is dead. The story ends while speaking at great length about theology, with Clement's reunited father so that they convert him. Simon Magnus gets punished for his nefarious lies after a brief- oh, they found him! Yes, and he briefly, very briefly, it's not even worth getting into, but he tries to attempt- He attempts to impersonate Clement's father, but then he gets caught and it doesn't go well, so they literally all live happily ever after. Wow. And then there is a letter from Clement to James the Just, where Clement explains that on Peter's deathbed, he appointed Clement to be his successor. And he sends with the letter a book of Peter's teachings, and this is how all of Peter's teachings have been preserved. Then there's this really weird fourth wall sort of breaking weird thing where there's a promise written out for the reader of the literature to keep what they have read secret, as if now... The reader is in on Clement's noble secret backstory. And that's how it ends. Wow. That was a ride. Everyone's alive after all, and they're all exactly in the places where they're gonna go. That's the Clementine literature for you. We've been on a journey. We have. 
And so now it is time to see how Clement holds up when we rate him. Papatum infallium. Talking about his overall success of the papacy. I think he's going to score pretty big here because he's managing the church in Rome with Peter, and he's trusted with a lot of responsibility. He's very, very influential in the early church. The letter to the Corinthians is one of the most important early church documents that we have for both the church and for historians. It's massive. He's the first to really assert Roman primacy as far as we know. And he's an apostolic father who's hugely influential in the church. So I'm looking at it, and there's no way I can give him a low score for this one. I think I have to give him a full 10, because he is the one that's really showing us what it means to be Pope at this time. And that's pretty successful. Yeah, he's he's pretty influential in the church. He sure is. So I will also give him a 10. That gives him a score of 20 for Papadum and Phallium. Which is more than we gave Peter. Well, I love it. <laughs> he at least is, it's, he's got some real, real bits to him. Real true facts. Mm -hmm. We got some facts. Yes. Added point for facts. Fructus prohibitum. His bad behavior. <sighs> there's not really, there's not really anything. Again, this is a category for our later popes. They are going to mop up the floor with this one. So big fat goose egg. I think we have to give him zero unless you want to say that it's bad behavior to convert people in the imperial household when that will piss off the emperor. No, that's just Tuesday again. Seculari impactum. Effect on the everyday people. He is the hero figure in what might have been a very popular romance read by more than just Christians. Well, that and he converted a whole bunch of people, even when he was. Supposed to be in some sort of labor camp, he still converted a whole bunch of people. Just like the regular populace is flocking to this man. Mm-hmm. And he's literally, even though there are not Christians at the time, he's saving them from death in this moment, pretty much. So you, if we're considering this the impact on the secular population, that's a pretty strong impact. He saved like 2,000 of them. It was pretty important. We haven't opened up to the broader world yet, but within his confines and the technology of the era, he is doing very well. Very. So what do you want to give him out of 10 for that one? I'll give him like an 8. I mean, he's doing great. An 8? Yeah, he's okay. doing real well. I think I'm going to give him a 6 because I think that balances it out pretty well. And that gives him a score of 14 for... Seculari impact him. Fossium Sanctus. And now we're going to look at his face. Yes. Let's see how hot this hot this uh, romance hero is. Why were people, like, flocking to him? There's a couple very prominent images of Clement, and they're very much the same. So I am going to send you the one that we're going to rate him on first. So we'll describe him based on this one. The ones that will follow will be similar, but we'll discuss them as we come to them. Here's Clement. Oh, okay. He's not an unattractive man. He's... Sure. I mean, you can't really tell with the friar Franciscan sort of bald thing on the top of his head. He also looks like an actor. He looks like Nestor Carbonell. Who? I don't know who that is. What was he in? I need context. He was in Lost and I think a couple other ABC shows. Here, I will send you a Google link. Give him a beard and a weird hairdo. Oh, yeah, okay. Okay, like an older Nestor. Yeah, okay, I could see it. Definitely, he's got the same face shape. He's got that long nose and that really hollow cheeks. Really strong but low eyebrows. You know, he's wearing very distinguishable garb. So, all right. If we were casting him in a movie, he could go alongside uh, Peter. Yes. So let's uh, let's rate him based on this picture. What do you want to give him in terms of his hotness? Oh, okay. Um, the beard and the hair are not doing it for me. So, points marked down. He also is scowly. He's not a happy-looking dude. He's really scowly. 
He's not like Peter's like frowning and perturbed looked, but he is douchey face. He's still very stern looking. He's very stern looking. So, so what do you want to uh, give him? I will give him a five. I think that's fair. He's he's the first. He doesn't have the little cloudy thing in his forehead. He doesn't. He's you know I think he's you know he's very to me he looks like priestly. I think I will match your five. All right. Wait, is he accidentally missing a finger or is that a thing? I think he's. Well, I don't want to say he's doing the shocker, but too late. I think that's what's happening there. <laughs> so he's going to end up with a 2.5 for Facium Sanctus. And now I have a couple more photos for you to look for. This is this one is a more stylized version, and we can see that it definitely comes from a more Byzantine approach because it's more mosaically. He's got a much wider face in this one, but still very scowly. And he looks very simple. You can see more what's going on with his yes. hands there. It's a lot less shocker-y and more of a Benedictus type of thing. Um, I like it just because it's a mosaic, so I wanted to put that one up there. He's holding a book. They all have books. He's got a book, the Holy Bible, of course. Oh, it's the Bible. Okay. And I have one more that comes from the Eastern churches. And they all have a very um, specific feature to them when you find these particular drawings or paintings or whatever. What I'm just going to show you, and I would like you to describe it for our listeners, so when we put it up, they are prepared to deal with what's happening in the Eastern representations. Here you go. He looks like a Mars attack alien. Oh, no, what's... No, he looks like Megamind. <laughs> there we go. It's a non-blue Megamind, yes. Um... So they do this. They do this thing with their Pope's heads when they have images of them. It's just the Pope's. The same pose. Everything about this picture in, in every other way is exactly the same as the other ones, except his head. Yeah, he's got the scowl, and he's got the hand, and he's got the Bible. But um, his head is about five times larger. But only on the top. Like, past the forehead. He has gone past... Five head to to like eleven head. Yes, he has. He's a little bit more comb overy with the hair too. Because how <laughs> could you fit all that hair? <laughs> that one's just just for jokes, just for laughs. Um, but we will. There are more rendition of Eastern depictions of popes that we will come across. You will now be prepared when you see it. All right, I will be prepared for the megamines. Tempus Pontificus. The thing about. Clement here is that there are many different dates for his papacy. We have the conventional recording of 88 to 99. Although the Liber Pontificalis suggests that Clement died in the third year of Trajan's reign, which would be 101. But we're going to go with the conventional 88 to 99. But we're going to take it to 92 to 99 because we ended Anacletus's papacy at 92. All right. That gives us a total of seven years and a total score of 1.75. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Do, 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 do. Clement is definitely a saint, and he's the first saint that we have, like, actual information on. He's included in the Roman canon of mass. He is considered a martyr by all traditions and stories. His feast day is the 23rd of November, and he's actually the patron saint of something. Is it Thanksgiving? He is the patron saint of marble workers, which, you know, considering his quarry time. And he has some saintly symbology as well. He's usually depicted with an anchor as a sign of his martyrdom near a spring or a fountain for his miracle, and he's always got the palm of martyrdom, which is that thing he's doing with his hand that looks a bit like the shocker. What it reminds me of is, um, I know you don't play video games, but when you're playing Bioshock, your hand does things when you're about to unleash your enhanced magical powers, and the this one reminds me of the electricity hand. 
All right, I'm going to check that out because it, it it's representing the palm of martyrdom. So I would like to have a reference that's better than shocker. So. Yeah, we got to stop saying that on this Pope podcast or this episode is going to be explicit. Yeah, and we don't want that. So that gives our total score for Clement, which is an impressive 39.25. That puts him in second place. Oh. Just after Peter. Um, he is only behind Peter, who has 51.5, and that's because Peter scored a lot of points for being a douchebag. So, I think that's a pretty fair score for him. If he had had the same Fructus Prohibitum score as Peter, he would have beat him. Oh. Yeah, so Peter is only our top seed at the moment because he's a douche so wow okay yeah so now we need to ask is clement pizzazzy enough is he memorable enough is he interesting enough to be worthy of a brand new paper ball yeah i want i want to say yes yes actually i would like to give him one i would absolutely love to give clement a papal bull. Because I think, just for the literature alone, that's pretty amazing. To be the first Gary Stew in history. It's important stuff. And of course, as a historian, I've got to credit him for the letter to the Corinthians. That gives us a lot of, a lot of good insight. And for someone who's doing the research for this podcast, it's nice to have something to look at where it doesn't next say, and this is disputed that it even happened. It's nice to be like, yes, for sure, this thing got written. And so I absolutely, 100%, want to give it to him. So congratulations, Clement. You have received our second papal bull. This brings us to the end of our sixth episode. So we just have some thank yous to make. We need to thank Dig Podcast for encouraging us and tweeting about us a little bit. The Silk Road History Podcast, which also just got started recently. They've been encouraging us. We've been encouraging them. That's really cool. Thank you for shouting out about us. We need to, again, thank L.J. Trafford, the author who's written an amazing series of books on the Roman emperors. Thank you very much for for tweeting out about us. And to Christian and Damon's amazing nerd show. They've retweeted almost every announcement that we've made on Twitter, and that's awesome. Nice. Yeah, they're helping us reach people, and that is super cool. You guys rock. I'm so grateful to everyone who's been putting the word out. We have a community already started, and we have not, as of recording, released an episode yet. So you guys are wicked, and we hope that you are enjoying listening, because the hype is real. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook as PontifexPod. We're also on most major podcatching platforms, including iTunes, Pocket Casts, and Podbean. You can also email us at pontifexpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Well, that's it for this week. Join us next week for a completely different Pope. And until then, we say thank you and goodbye. Bye! Bye.